When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It, it did frustrate me how officers were not being as restricted as they should, and they're very liberal and quite gung-ho about it, and not really understand the impact of what they do and how it frustrates people, especially those who look like me from African, Caribbean or Asian origins. And there lies the real frustration that they just don't see it um, or they don't want to see it. And they're in a sense of denial. And that goes all the way up the ranks. Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop by Leroy Logan. It is a fascinating book. Leroy's life it is just the absolute mirror of society. Stop and search issues, Black Lives Matter, institutional racism. This is a career, a life that absolutely could not be more relevant today. So this is a conversation you need to hear and you need to share it. Let's get into this. This is Stop and Search on Scoobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you for joining us on Stop and Search. We're going to go straight into this because you need to hear this conversation with Leroy. It is just incredible. His life is going to be dramatised soon, but you can get the book and then you really do. You need to get this book and you need to share it with someone and you need to buy it for someone as well because it's one of those ones that it's not enough reading it. We need to act on it. So let's get into this. This is Leroy Logan. His life as a cop. Well, where do we start? He started off at the bottom ranks like you do but he got up to superintendent level he was one of the founding members of the national black police association his outreach resume is incredible he's worked with so solid crew <laughs> you name it he, he's done it so let's hear it from his own words this is leroy logan closing ranks my life is a cop Okay, so I'm joined by Leroy Logan today, and I've been reading your book, and I must admit I got through it really quickly, because it is the type of book you can't put down. It really oh, is. Right. Um, and the first thing that struck me is just how much your career and your life mirror society. Everything that's going on in society today that's come to prominence, you've gone through your entire system. I found that the, the sequence of events that led to the book being published because it's been a labor of love since 2010 and so many times I started it but I just didn't feel like it had all of me in it <clears throat> it was a bit of me it was in 2016 when I was um, in dialogue with Steve McQueen who's doing a film about my life in his small act series or one of the episodes of it. And he really drilled into me saying, you know, I just can't understand how you still join the police service, knowing that your dad had been beaten up. It's not like you needed a job because you were a scientist. Why did you do it, you know? Because the book wasn't explicit around my faith, that is my anchor and gives me the resilience that I need to withstand the challenges. But it's through that conversation so I was having with him and um, around the project and he wanted to really know what was inside of me, that it really 
encapsulated everything. And uh, that's how the book really became... Uh, well, it was easy after that to just put pen to paper. Um, but I, I needed a ghostwriter because it was a spiritual journey and and my ghostwriters are a Christian as well. And it really sort of gave me, you know, a sense of, you know, I'm not being so supercilious or being superfluous to anything. I wanted to be authentic, you know. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, it was a good combination um, having him to... Because especially it's your first book, you don't want to be going off off target, um, offline type of thing. So it was really good in that respect. So the full title of the book is uh, Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop. And you're right, there's two kind of themes and linchpins throughout it is that you're a person of faith and that has really influenced your decision making, uh, which you explain in the book, but also you're a person of science, uh, which has really come into your life as a, as a police officer in, in some really quite strange ways. So have those two always been prominent for you? Have they ever conflicted at all? Science and my profession? Yeah. No, no. I, I, I mean, any profession I've had, <clears throat> or it, even since retirement, um, and I'm still as busy as I was when I was in the Met, it's never been a conflict, confliction at all. I, I think it would only be that if I wasn't clear on how my faith is that golden thread, if that's a good term, uh, and it's really the essence of who I am and it's my moral compass, it's um, it, it it's the one that gives me the desire to not just see a problem and walk past it, but face that problem, even if it's not mine, and if it's if it's someone else's, I have to I try and advocate on their behalf. If they haven't got the contacts or the experience to deal with it. And I suppose it's that sort of pastoral side of me that's been prominent throughout policing because I, I you know, I, I would like to see officers show more of that pastoral side because most of policing is relationships, problem solving, working with individuals and organisations and, and not at them in terms of enforcement and stop and search, arrests, etc. So it should be a much more softer look and feel. And I don't mean soft as in being soft on crime or criminals, but being understanding of what the issues are. And and don't necessarily default that that person's a suspect or a potential prisoner. It might be that person might be a potential patient and you need to deal with them in a totally different way which is not a default for most police officers. Some, yes, but most of them, they default to the enforcement piece and that's a suspect. And <clears throat> you, sometimes they look at it, you're, you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. You know, that's, what, that's the emphasis of stop and search, you know. Oh, they smell weed, right? You must have weed. Um, <laughs> sometimes you think, well, is there something wrong with a sense of smell? And, you know, to, does that really give you reasonable grounds to stop someone and search them and use handcuffs to do that and, you know, really upset people by embarrassing them, making them feel dehumanised? So for me, my faith helped me to understand other people's positions, even if they're playing up, but more importantly, how I can get as much information out of them to help maybe solve their problem or other people's problems and, you know, leave in a positive way. And I, I, you know, I still have people who I happen to arrest from time to time. They still say hello to me, you know, if they see me on the street or, you know, even even on social media, you know, they, they don't hold that because I treat them like a human being and not, you know, just sometimes treating them in an inhuman way. But well, this is, um, I was going to get into this later, but it's a really good time to get into it. Of When you was uh, seniority within the police force and you was in charge of uh, setting um, targets and things like that, you mentioned that uh, Section 60, which is you know, essentially uh, grounds to be stopped and searched, and 
you were very strict on that. You you were the one that was saying no to a lot of these these uh, suspects um, and just deciding we need more evidence before we can actually do anything with that. That must have been interesting for you personally, but also the people around you, because you said that in the book that it did frustrate a lot of people. Well, I mean, leadership in lots of ways can be quite frustrating for people, if, especially if they're not getting what they wanted from you, you know. And in those, those circumstances, as a superintendent, I have to give authority for them to go and do a roadblock or demarcate an area where they, they want to stop people, where there's fear of violence or further violence. Now, a lot of the time they present information, which I didn't class as proper intelligence, to convince me they had the reasonable grounds. Because once I've signed, signed, I'm taking on the responsibility of reasonable grounds. So those officers can stop anyone without having to say to them, I've got reasonable grounds. My superintendent's given you that, so I don't need to tell you anything. So oh, empty your pockets or whatever. So knowing the responsibility of that, and I want to make sure my officers actually are stopping the right people, i.e. the criminals doing the criminality, are not stopping people going about their lawful business. And all that is going to do is create um, frustration and anger and anti-police um, rhetoric and actions, which can result to some form of violence, really, but it sometimes can. I was very, very mindful. I was the gatekeeper, basically, where I saw for innocent community members being stopped unnecessarily. So I was, I was very proud, if that's the right word, to be part of the class for a change, because I, I issued least number of Section 60s, because... I didn't want to be part of people's added frustration. Um, and I didn't want my officers to think I just rubber stamp things. That was really important for me. So <clears throat> I was Mr. Popular, but then again, I've never uh, purported to be Mr. Popular. I, I needed to be using ethical leadership and objectivity and helping my officers to know what is expected of them by proper rigour of information and the sort of grip I had in, in terms of knowing my powers, knowing what I'm expecting, and of course, communicate that in a way where they might not agree, but they just have to respect my opinion. And stop and search has been a theme throughout your life and career in that you've got a great line in the book that there's whole sections of communities that are over-policed but under-protected. And that's certainly what we're seeing now and it's come to prominence and it's something that you've dealt with for so, so long. So what's it like for you having seen the absolute hub of this problem from a very early stage to now it's just starting to get media prominence? What's that journey been like? Frustrating. Because, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> obviously as a youngster getting stopped under the sus law, you know, coming out of school with my trumpet case, my satchel and stuff like that, you think, I'm just a youngster, I'm in my uniform, so I don't know how how many criminals walk around in school uniform, but there we go. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But yeah, it it, it was very frustrating and you know, once I was in the police I, I realized to what extent it was part of the culture, because it's the police well I call it police service, it should be a police service, but it's more like a police force at the moment. Um but the police service is, well, let me clarify. The Met Police has a real default around stop and search because they account for half of the stop and search nationally, even though it's one of 43 force areas. Admittedly, it's the biggest, but it still accounts for half, about 300,000 stop and search annually. And <clears throat> it's inbred in you because you learn those sort of things. And other than this is how you do it properly, but you learn how to cut corners and, you know, certain people's unwritten laws of how you do certain 
actions and execute certain powers. So when I was in Hendon, within the first few weeks, I realised how why officers actually do the things they do because it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the norms and values. You know, certain officers, um, especially the older, more experienced ones, pass on to junior ones. Well, yeah, this is how they tell you in the book or the manual, but this is how we do it here, you know. And, it, and, and it, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but it won't actually pass the proper assessment around adhering to people's human rights and the codes of conduct and all the other things that restrict. And so it, it, it did frustrate me how officers were not being as restricted as they should and they're very liberal and quite gung-ho about it and not really understand the impact of what they do and how it frustrates people, especially those who look like me from African, Caribbean or Asian origins. And there lies the real frustration that they just don't see it um, or they don't want to see it. And they're in a sense of denial. And that goes all the way up the ranks. Because, you know, even now, when you speak to officers, senior officers, and you say, listen, there is no intelligence or any analysis of stop and search over the decades to show there's a correlation with stop and search and knife crime. Because officers say it a lot. Well, in my experience, I know if we do less stops, knife crime goes up. It's an absolute, totally baseless comment. Because... Less than 5% of stops actually come up with something to do with weapons or blades or anything. Less than 5 could be as low as less than 3%. So you've got over 95% of people being stopped for knives and they're not in it, either don't have any or I'm not saying they don't use them, but they don't have them with them. And, you know, and, in it, and there's a lot of innocent people stopped. Now... That in itself reduces trust in police because, you know, people are, you know, you've been stopped three or four or five times a week or a month. It's going to really upset you because, as I said, it's very embarrassing. And the fact that the Met continues to use stop and search in such a default way, despite the evidence and the analysis that says there's no correlation, shows that they're not going to change unless they have independent oversight. And that's the thing. When, when there was the improvement around stop and search was after the McPherson inquiry and the recommendations that came out of that. And, you know, I, I, I was one of the officers that gave evidence at McPherson to say it, it met, or the police services introduced to racist. And some of the recommendations related to officers' conduct out on the streets and stop and search was part of that. And when that was being monitored independently by the Stephen Lawrence Steering Group, chaired by Jack Straw and subsequent Labour um, Home Secretaries, officers knew that their stops, wherever they are in the country, was going to be monitored. And what gets measured gets done. And so senior officers, supervisors on the streets, Leadership was raised, holding the officers to account to ensure they were stopping people for the right reasons. Since then, it finished about 2009, that's Stephen Hunt's steering group, 2010 onwards, we've had the austerity with the Tory government. And as a result of that, less officers, um, especially community-focused officers, safer neighbourhood teams, safer schools officers, all these sort of people, has meant that officers are just carrying out more firefighting-type policing, you know, blue lights and sirens from one call to another, not really dealing with the problem, just moving on a lot of the times, using stop and search liberally because it's the default. And so you're seeing now, again, low numbers of knives um, and other pointed blades or weapons being discovered. Um, as I said, over 95% of people are being frustrated by it. Trust and confidence is going down the pan. And, you know, I, I'm thinking we're now in a pre-McPherson era. 
you know, the whole look and feel of policing reminds me of what we had before. So we had that improvement between 1999 when the re report was published to 2009. But since then, the last 10, 11 years, things have eroded, you know, and not just about the stop and search, but also the race and equality agenda, diversity is not really understood because it's not being monitored. Whereas the Stephen Lawrence Steering Group was monitoring internal diversity, recruitment, retention, progression. I was part of the officers who set the, the performance indicators for all of those phases. And also about this disproportionate number of officers from black and minority groups who suffer from disproportionality in investiga um, investigations against them, disciplinary investigations, rather. Those are the sort of things that's really impacted on uh, officers of colour in the Met or and in other police services. And I think what I have always tried to communicate with my colleagues from the Commissioner right across is there's an inextricable link between how you treat your diverse personnel, because the better you treat them, the more equipped you are to serve the needs of a diverse public. And at the moment, under leadership of Cressetta Dick, it's, it's, not, it's not presenting itself, which is frustrating because Cres was part of the whole McPherson and the recommendations and the rollout on senior investigating officers training, family liaison officers, the hate crime legislation, all these things. She showed real involvement because she was working with John Greaves as, as a commander. But you, you wouldn't believe she's the same person now because of the way in which she's allowing this real hard-nosed enforcement, punitive type of policing, which I believe is a retrograde step. You've certainly had battles with the Met throughout your career, both from an early stage, but also in the latter stages as well. But you mentioned the fact that officers uh, that are black are far more likely to be investigated for disciplinary action than what their white counterparts are. Um, so is there any signs of that's going to start improving? Or do you think that we do need some sort of wholesale reform within the Met? I, uh, no, it's not stopped. And not just in the Met, but across the country. And... Um... I think <clears throat> the reform is necessary, especially with this Black Lives Matter. Now, I know the inappropriate concept of defunding the police has tr transported itself from the states and they, you know, it's been hijacked by certain um, groups who really want to scare people. But I think if the police service really adopt the public health approach to policing. And, and that in itself realigns assets so that officers are not necessarily being called to uh, a, men a mental ill health case or a drug psycho psychosis case or an exclusion of a student case. Because those sort of cases where officers turn up in uniform can actually be counterproductive. Now, if in doing the public health approach, you have a triage framework in which sometimes officers don't have to turn up. It can be an approved psychologist. It can be a paramedic. And I know certain police services, like in Glasgow, when I went up to Police Scotland, where they've been running the public health approach to their violence reduction unit over a decade now, they had that bespoke approach. And so they had to realign their assets accordingly. So I believe the adopting of the public health approach will actually have the same desired effect. And that has been um, on people's sort of uh, narrative for a number of years. So especially since I was involved in the Youth Violence Commission that reported earlier this year. So, and we had an interim report in 2018. So those sort of things have been 
you know, banded about. People really don't understand it, but if they did look at it properly and, you know, don't use it as a buzzword, but understand what that asset-based approach is, then I think we would get the reforms that are necessary and you would get um, officers buy-in a lot better. And we get a better service to the public. Would it be possible for you to give, uh, you mentioned there how uh, defund the police has kind of crossed the Atlantic and how it doesn't necessarily fit what we're doing here. Would you be able to give a, because it's quite useful because we get a lot of questions on that. And when I was speaking to the, our podcast network boss, Scroobius Pip, um, he's wanted to do stuff on this as well to clarify what's going on within that movement. Would you be able to give a little bit of an overview of why that doesn't necessarily fit our narrative here? Well, I, I think it's because each police department in America is so independent of a national framework, whereas all police services over here, all 43, buy into the Home Office framework. So there is that sort of... And there's not that demarcation of federal law and state law. So, you know, it's easy to coordinate and to bring in policies that, have an impact on all force areas or, or constabularies. Whereas in America, there's, there's the double layer of federal and state law bringing its complications in itself. So it's, le it's led to um, state mayors to govern their municipal forces, to reform them, and invariably it's independently. So you don't have the, the federal mandate to say, right, this is how you reform right across the country. So it, it's left to be a bespoke approach um, and it's, it, it doesn't set minimum standards. And I think that's what the, when the Joe Biden Democratic candidate is trying to do is say, well, listen, we can set that standard. But in the meantime, it is left to units to... Say, well, listen, how do we do similar things but get better results? So it's around external oversight. So they need to have a group of people who say, well, listen, you are conducting, you, you know, your policing performance indicators, but you, you're shooting people. Or you're um, showing a lack of, you know, care. Because this is supposed to be protect and serve. Well, you, you don't do a lot of protecting uh, in the name of serving. So they are going through, I believe, an under, well, they have to come up with an agreement that they have to realign their funding so that officers are not dealing with cases which they're not really equipped to deal with. For an example, there was um, a black American um, young man who was suffering from uh, a mental um, crisis, a mental health crisis, and he was naked in the middle of winter. It was March, and those officers handcuffed him, laying stark naked, in the, laying on the street, no clothes, nothing. And, and then they put a hood on him because he wasn't compliant. Well, the man's suffering from sarcosis. By the t but he panicked when they put the hood on him. And as a result of that, he, he went into, um, I can't remember the medical term, but it, it basically went into um, hyperventilation and he had a heart attack in effect and he died. By the time the paramedics came, he, you know, he was almost stone cold, no pulse, and he, you know, declared um, dead at the hospital. Now, those officers should have been called there. It should have been mental health practitioners. It should have been the ambulance which should have been called here first, not the police. Because by the time, you know, they were restraining him, holding him down, again, getting into that um, delirium that caused the hyperventilation and the heart 
rate going up. And I don't think the hypothermia did help anyway. So those are sort of things that officers in each of the state has to get to grips with. And it's, and, it, and it's their senior management or senior leadership team has to work with the mayor and independent bodies and individuals to agree the, the, the new process in which they're going to police. So it's not taking away their powers or taking away their guns or any other sort of um, enforcement tools, but it's saying don't go to certain cases or calls because you're not equipped to deal with it. And it's a similar sort of thing over here. Officers, um, we, we, you know, we, we see officers have a propensity now to use tasers on mental health cases. Well, one, don't always work, especially if you're suffering from um, some form of crisis. You're not necessarily going to be affected by a taser. And, 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 and invariably they're doing it because that person's not, not complying. Well, they wouldn't because they might be going through some form of psychosis. So you tasering them is not really helping. And then they need help more as a patient, not as a prisoner. And we need to get that sort of process clear. Now, it should be in the officer's training, but it's not enough because they're not doing it on a consistent basis. And that's the process of, I believe, major part reform is training officers to, to read the signs, especially culturally competent signs. So again, another example, I remember going to a mental health case man had barricaded himself in, family, home, and I talked him out of it. Now, how could I do that? Well, it so happens, he's black, and he, I grew up in a local area. So I was talking to him about, oh, do you play football in Close Hill Park? Yeah, how do you know? And we just started to talk about, uh, a team do sport? Spurs, oh, all right then. I want to hold it against you because I'm a gooner. Oh, really? And then he opened the door. So I could relate to him because there's things for me to talk about because my shared and common experience with him. Now, some officers don't have the time for that. And that's all I talk about, the pastoral element and the advocacy. You want to try and talk them out of it without, well, I've got time for this, mate, you know, get in a van or something like that. It takes time. Uh, I was an inspector at the time and my officers were saying to me, Gov, you know, you go all day. I said, yeah, if I can get him out of there without him ripping up the place and threatening his family and he gets the help he needs at the hospital, I've done my job. You know, those are sort of things I believe is lacking because the thin blue line is very thin at the moment. You know, there are 20,000 cops down, 700 detectives out of all of that, just in the Met alone. 20,000 nationally, but in, in the Met it's 6,000 down and 700 detectives. So, you know, there's hardly any investigation that you should have. The clear-up rate is low because you're not getting information from the public to really, you know, people not getting statements. They're not um, going to ID parades. They're not going to court because police are not making them feel safe. And, you know, there's a lot of officers, as I said, firefighting, just running from one call to another, not really investigating. Um, and I've been a victim of crime a couple of times over the last few years. I'm not getting a, getting a service, but I know the plight they're going through. So you need to reform because of the lower numbers. You've got to be, I, I believe, acting more smarter than just working harder. And that for me is what the reform process should be. Where we need to be without making things worse, educating the public, this is what we are called to, and making sure we use other assets that are better equipped to deal with that person or those group of people. I think there's a consistent message throughout the book that you do believe that community policing is the way ahead and also the way that we used to do things. So you mentioned the fact that we are underrepresented in black officers, especially in the communities that need it, where there can be a relation to it. So how do we go about that of getting people that wouldn't look at the police as any kind of career option, would see them as a layer of persecution, 
how do we make sure that we get the message across to them that they need to be part of the community and to do what you did and to step up and, and be part of that policing solution? I think it's about the narrative. If chief constables, and, and some are doing a great job, but if you've got like the commissioner who's not really showing statement of intent of what she's really going to do to improve the work environment of black officers and not actually showing that she understands that black officers have a harder experience in that hostile environment, less likely to be promoted, undervalued in appraisals and likely to be investigated. So if you even acknowledge we have a problem and we're going to do something about it, that shows to the officers themselves that you're taking things seriously. It also shows it to the public that you're taking it seriously. So if they think, well, actually, I'm not going to join the police because look at what's happening with the ones in there. But if the commissioner comes out and says, well, actually, I'm going to deal with this. I have got a problem. I'm acknowledging it. I'm going to do something about it because I can see the difference between what white officers are going through and what black officers are going through. And I will monitor progress, not by myself, but also externally. So it's totally accountable and transparent process. That would, that would be such a strong signal to people wanting to join because the officers in there saying, well, Commissioner's doing something about it. She's acknowledging it. We are more likely to be ambassadors for the organisation and encourage people to join. So that's the link I tell, told you about. If you treat your diverse personnel right, you're better equipped to serve the needs of a diverse community and people will want to join because it's a laudable job. And I suppose it takes into account how the Met was set up by the Home Secretary at the time in 1829, Sir Robert Peel, hence being called Bobby's. That the police, the public, the public, the police. You've got to keep that link. And it's so important till this very day. They call it the Peelian principles. It's so critical that officers bear that in mind, especially when you are stopping people. Because I used to say to my officers, when you're stopping people, could you just bear in mind, unless they're very elderly, um, and invariably officers are, are much easy with the type of, um, their with their actions with the elderly. You don't normally have problems with them, even though my dad was beaten up and he was in his late 50s. But invariably, they're, they're easy, much easier with it. However, the younger people, every time you stop them or deal with them, they could be a potential recruit or potential witness of a crime. So each time you touch, you know, that, that you, you deal with that person, and you have to touch them hands-on, whether it's stop and search or arrest or whatever, just bear that in mind, because you never know. That person, how you deal with them might change our whole view of policing, whether it's potential recruit or um, a witness or even a volunteer, um, an independent advisor, a custody office visitor, all sorts of things. And I, that's what I used to instill. Think of the long term, not just at the time. And I suppose it's also, if you don't know how people react, find out. I, I actually developed a handbook, well, as a Hendon, about the cultural norms and, and, and habits of certain minority groups. Just so that it was a little handbook um, that officers could walk around with. I'm not saying, oh, I'll stop there, please, while I'm stopping you. Uh, oh, yes, you're, you're a Sikh, yes. And, um, oh, yes, a, a, and you have um, a 
a turban. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's what I'm not saying that they need to have a working um, understanding, a working knowledge of these things before they go out. But I also think we need to have more recruits from London or in that commensurate era of that police service. Because unfortunately, a lot of officers are drawn to the Met are not from London. So they've got a big jump. I mean, for me to go to, say, Liverpool and police, it would take me years to really get to understand the culture, um, you know, even, you know, the do's and don'ts. And, and, and some people have very strong accents, so I might not be able to understand it. Now, I know some people might stop a person in London uh, from the East End, and even I'll have difficulty, and I grew up in the East End. So, you know, you've you got to have that on-the-job training about what it really means. And I suppose that's what I showed in the Damalola Taylor investigation, the shared and common experience of those officers, le- building relationships with the community, reassuring them that if you give me information, you will be safe and secure, and we will identify the witnesses and the suspects that will lead to convictions and make your streets safer and you'll feel more secure. That's what it's all about, really, in essence. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You give me a really good segue into when you were a recruit and how you got into that process. It was a very unique time because, as you mentioned, your father was beaten up by the police at the same time that you made the decision to go into the police. So, first of all, what was that like for you? But what reaction did you get from your community around you and your family? Well, I was questioning my sanity because, you know, I was set. You know, I had, um, I would say, my career path in science set up. could have gone into medicine. And I was happy where I was at the Royal Free, beautiful surroundings. Um, Yeah, so I was set. My career path was set. I was not even think about policing, even though I did have an encounter with a police officer and I didn't actually talk to them. I just saw that black officer in that marked vehicle when I was running from one section of uh, the, the science campus at the University of East London, running from one section to another. And I, and I stood in my tracks and I thought, what a brave guy. And... I also 
you know, when I was in Jamaica as a child, I saw black officers, like black doctors and black prime ministers. So I could see, you know, back in the back of my mind that it had planted some seeds there. So when my boss was doing my appraisal, he said, well, you know, you um doing a great job, but I don't see you as a research scientist for the next 20, 30 years. And I, I said, well, what do you think I should do? He said, and out, you're an outgoing person, you're a people person, you know, you, you, you really need to do something outside of a lab. And then he mentioned, what about policing? And I thought, really? And about the same time, I, you know, I, I thought, do I look like a racist? You know, it's, I just couldn't understand why, why he would say that. Because my experience from the SUS law and, and everything, and then um, my, um, a couple of guys I used to encounter in the gym um, at the Royal Free and, and in the bar, they declared they're police officers. And I'm gosh, what's going on here? And they'd start to take me on drive rounds. Because I thought, what, you know, what you do? And, and they said, yeah, we'll take you around. And I thought, actually, it's not a bad job. Um, and then I remember saying to Gretel, I said, you know, Roy says I should become a cop. She, and she said, yeah, well, I think you should. And I said, no, that's not the answer I want. You should be talking me out of it. And I was really questioning my mind, my real mental capacity here. But I still applied, not really understanding fully that it'd be tested to the max when... I applied and they wanted me, that was late 82, so summer of 82, and they wanted me to join in like November of 82. And I said, no, no, I'm not going there in the middle of winter. Uh, and it's a 20-week course, five months up in Hendon, in the, you know, those dark, long evenings. And no, no, no. And um, I said, can you have it? It's like in summertime. It's totally selfish reason. And... They said, yeah, we're June of 83, fine. So between getting that new date and, and, and leading up to the end of 82, my dad gets beaten up. And that's the worst nightmare because I love my dad. He was my role model, my hero. And I know he would even, he would he'd be devastated that I was even thinking about the police and, and going away from my career path set out as a scientist much less him being beaten up by officers. So I was going to join the ranks of officers who beat him up. Now, admittedly, when he got beaten up, he eventually sued the Met for unlawful arrest and excessive force. But all the same, how do I tell him? And that was the real... So I, 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 it was procrastination to the A-star grade. You know, I was, couldn't tell him until it, it was for, my hand was forced and, and he was told by officers searching, not searching, visiting the house, because that was the original address I gave. But I told them I'd moved on because, you know, I was getting married at that stage and we had a flat in Highbury just down the road. And instead of coming to the new address, they went to the old address. My dad finds out, gives me a call and, oh. But to, you know, to, to his um, real amazing qualities as a father and you know, a person who really loved his children, uh, my sister and I, you know, he, he still followed, followed up that support and he took me to Hendon that night before uh, I was supposed to join on the 20th of June, 83. And yeah, he was there for me throughout, you know. And as a result of that, I went, I remember when I got the MBE and, you know, we were walking up the stairs and he actually said, Leroy, you know, I suppose you did the right thing after all. And that meant so much for me. Because literally two years later, he was dead. So I'm glad we had that conversation. But it was, it, I was really questioning, why am I doing this? What, what is this really all about? But I suppose it really made sense when I, I was one of the founding members of the Black Police Association in 94. And we launched in September 94. But before then, I went to the Bloomsbury Baptist Church with Jesse Jackson and he was speaking um, 
at the church to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Martin Luther King in when, when Dr. King came over to London for that one and only visit. I spoke at the same church 30 years earlier in 64 and it just dropped, you know. It, it, it was talk about Romans 12, not to be conformed of this world, but transformed by renewing your mind and understanding what that means and the practical applications of it. And I suppose that's where my faith really kicked in in 94, because I, I saw it really clearly, why I was there, what I needed to do. This wasn't just me going through the ranks. It's also about making changes and you've got to be in it to change it. And for me, it, it was really a no-brainer. You know, it was... I had to make, you know, an understanding that once you put your head above the parapet, you're going to be on someone's target. So I had to have that strength of character. And that's where my faith really kicked in to give me that resilience and that strength of character to withstand the challenges because I knew we were going to be extremely, um, we're going to be seen as toxic by the rest of the organisation. But, you know, um, that that's what's par for the course. Uh, we've now got... The, um, the local authority uh, bin men. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you might hear some background noise. <laughs> that's all right. They can yeah, join. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we've, we've had worse on this show. Yeah, yeah. So. That's uh, why it's gone a bit brighter. It's a bright white van. <laughs> I saw something pull up, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's that's a really good point, actually. That I, I, one of the things I really want to quiz you on is is the. Uh, black police association both you started off as the met uh, black police association which then turned kind of into the national black police association that is such a prominent organization today that most of us know and you were there at the start of it the grassroots of it so this is going to be a really open-ended question but what was that like um well how it started was um the met had an initiative uh, sorry, an initiative, sorry, I'm eating a nut here. I shouldn't have really done it while you asked me the question. But anyway, <laughs> I went to these Bristol seminars looking into why black officers were leaving. And that's still the case now, you know. The black officers are two to three times more likely to leave in the, in the first three or four years than their white counterparts. And they were looking into this in 1990 with an assistant commissioner, Wynne Jones. And we went to Bristol, opened up our hearts and our minds and told them exactly what was going on. And the report, which I helped to, to compile, was basically shelled by the senior management team or senior leadership. And, but it brought us together. And we used to have these socials and they were like small and they grew to massive banqueting suites and we were attracting people, fellow um, officers from other parts of the country, other practitioners, you know, firefighters, um, prison officers, lawyers. And you could see that the public really identified with us. It was really amazing how people are drawn to us. And then we said, so we need to formulate, structure ourselves because, you know, we, we, we didn't want to be seen as, you know, we, we want to have a clarity of what we stood for because we were identifying a community, identifying with our colleagues, what that's all about. And it, it took us 18 months to really get our ideas right and, I remember the first meeting in April 93 and in that room about 20 of us and the common vision and real essence of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. My only concern was how many of us were going to be around in 10 years' time. So I knew this was for the long haul. And I remember we got our constitution together and as I said, we launched in September 94 and then that Jesse Jackson intervention really made it clear to me that we need we had a platform and we needed to make our voices heard to improve the organization and to make sure 
it's fit for purpose for a diverse London or any other city where officers uh, conduct their um, their service. And it's it was clear to me then that we we would be relevant, even though the Federation said, no, no, you don't need you. You could just be part of us. I said, well, we were part of you and you weren't dealing with things, so no thanks. We will be equal partners, which they didn't like. And they tried everything to, to undermine us and, you know, witch hunts and people investigating us and all this sort of stuff. But we, we knew that we had to say it as it is. And I suppose our, our first challenge was the McPherson Inquiry in actually saying that the police service is institutionally racist. And how that changed so many things about policing gave the Met Police currency to challenge the organisation at all the levels. You know, being a critical friend, because we were part of the ranks. But we knew that there was nothing wrong with the police that couldn't be rectified or what's good with it. So knowing that, we just needed to bring the police service out of itself to start solving things. And I suppose we, it, you know, it wasn't just pointing the finger because we need three fingers pointing back at us saying, how do we step up to improve? So we have to come up with our own solutions. And I suppose that's how we set up the the Black Police Association Charitable Trust, which, again, ran in line with the BPA and the National BPA. And now that's morphed into a charity called Void Youth. And we've been running that for... So the concept of the BPA Charitable Trust was 98, uh, first youth leadership programme in 2001. And it's now a, a Young Leaders for Safer City programme the year in nine students who get a BTEC level two before they even start their GCSEs, knowing their rights and responsibilities. So in answer to your question, the, the sort of legacy piece is really important for me. Um, and not just to say, oh, we made some change, but we still got the framework in which to keep that change alive. Although, as I say, through austerity, a lot of it been eroded and sidelined, but we need to keep it alive. We need to keep it on the agenda. We, you know, and and not to be just self-serving internally, but we have to do external programs. And you know, it's really great that we got young people who were in our early programs, say, 15, 18 years ago. They're still with us now, and they're still giving back. You know, what one is a a, a doctor, a GP. Uh, Kanara Mohammed, she's one of our trustees. She did our program in 2004. You know, she was on the COVID line for months, you know, helping so many patients. And um, and then got a young man who was about the same time. His name is Simeon Brown. He works for Channel 4. And in fact, during my book launch, he was interviewing me. You know, so it just shows that this journey. So... That, that's the jewel in the crown for me, to know that we're relevant. Some people might not want it, but we need to tell them what they need to know, not what they would like to hear. And making sure we do it evidence-based, objectively, with the best interests at heart. I actually, a lot of people say, I hate the police. I don't hate police. I love the police. But I've got to tell them what they need to know, not what they would like to hear. And sometimes they believe I'm just being trouble. But as, as Senator John Lewis used to say, I'm into good trouble. That's what I do. Good trouble. You, you, you segue me into a really good point to end on. Um, something that's the, a consistent theme in the book is you do outreach, but you do outreach in an entertaining way. And entertainment is so crucial in getting messages across, in getting uh, social cohesion. And also, uh, I think you mentioned that your life will be uh, dramatised. Um, so how important is it to you in your work that the outreach you do is put in a language that people can understand and can get in enjoyment out of? It's critical because it helps you to relate to people. 
I remember I used to do a lot of sports, football, athletics, squash, all these things. And I used to love, you know, um, even music. I used to love interfacing with the public in the different levels. And they might not even know I was a police officer. And that, that for me is really great because I know how it, when officers imp- relate to me, and I saw the human side first before I saw the the officer in uniform or whatever. That that for me was critical. And um, I'd really just carry that on because, you know, if I tell you something, you might more than likely forget. If I show you, you might remember. But if I involve you, you'll understand. So this book really is to get people's involvement in different ways, you know, the personal story, let them realise I'm just a regular person I've done stuff which I'm proud of and the things I've got wrong I've tried to improve on it I'm far from perfect but I've grafted and I've tried my best you know I just mirrored what I saw with my parents and you know I want to be a, a good example to my children and grandchildren and all the other children I encounter especially with Voyage and so I want it to be interesting. And I mean, one of the biggest compliments you, you could have given me is to say, well, actually, I couldn't put it down because it was an easy read. And, it, you know, <clears throat> I didn't want it to be, you know, uh, a brain ache. Excuse my French. I didn't want it to be... It, I, I, I want policing to be seen as relatable because if you can put it in a way that people can identify, then not necessarily they want to be a police officer, they might say, well, actually, have you read that book? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of you, you know, that type of thing. And so I want it to be as relatable as possible. I want it to be as real and authentic as possible. And I bring out the good and the bad. I mean, I didn't have to talk about my wife left me. But I just want to say, well, that's what happens in policing. The, the demands of it, you can sometimes get so absorbed in the norms and values of the organisation. And that's why my faith was really good to make it clear to me and, and also my identification of where I came from that I'm a black man who happens to be a cop. Because that means I integrate and don't assimilate and adopt the norms and values of it. So I will bring in all of the, the things I hold dear, whether it's music, sports, um, my cultural identity, I want you to know about it. You'll be a richer person for it and I want to know about you and I'll be a richer person for it. So let's integrate in a way that we mutual respect and mutual understanding. And that for me is is critical because if you're real with people, they'll recognise you. You know, there's a thing on the streets, real recognise real. Now, sometimes that real is... I'm, dangerous so recognize it in that way but i'm talking about the positive elements of it let's be authentic let's be respectful let's understand that we've got to do these things together and we'll be better off for it and for me in closing my my real driver is i don't want my grandchildren to go through the same struggles that my children's generation or my generation have gone through. That's why I'm not chilling out on a beach somewhere in Africa or the Caribbean or Asia or wherever, um, even though it'd be difficult now with COVID and everything. But I could have, when I retired seven years ago, I could be enjoying the fruits of my labour, chilling out, even though they say don't do that because you know you can drop dead after a high-octane job like policing. But no, I, I really wanted to ensure that I give back because I know there's a struggle, there's a need. And I suppose identifying the time of real possibilities with the Black Lives Matter and everyone being on the same page and saying, listen, we can do this, we can make ourselves better. And, you know, I, I really believe a lot can come out of these challenges we're going through, especially with COVID. And, you know, let's try and be relaxed with each other and inform one another of things that 
make us more rounded people. And I would like to think that, you know, as a, as, as a community, as a society, we are, we're getting there. We just need to remind ourselves and don't get distracted by rhetoric and conspiracy theories. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that. Again, closing ranks, My Life as a Cop by Leroy Logan. I cannot recommend it enough. It is something you can get through so quickly because you can't put it down. And you mentioned in the book that you're busier now than ever in retirement. So thank you so much for giving us your time today. No, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I uh, hopefully, you know, if anyone can identify with it and they realise that if I can do it, they can do it, well, it's actually achieve the true objective or what I wrote the book for. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much, Leroy. That was brilliant. And as I said, it's not enough just reading a book. We need to act on it. And Leroy is, is as I said at the end of that, he's busy now in retirement than he's ever been. So thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time on that. And while we're on thank yous, we do, of course we need to thank the producers of this show, Nikki, Tristan and John. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you to John Harris at the Distraction Pieces Network for all you do. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. Thank you to Scooby's Pit for having us on your network. Thank you for you listening as well. We've had some lovely comments lately. Some people that have been tweeting us saying that this is more than a podcast. This is this is a a way of life and <laughs> we need to do things about the, the the issues being discussed so thank you so much for taking the time to tweet us and if you can it's always lovely to hear from you so you know share subscribe act if you want to follow us on twitter at uk leap it's instagram at uk leap facebook ukleap.org and our website ukleap.org so until next time thank you keep sharing and bye behind your But how long can I stay Behind your barricades Where the valleys seldom stray Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.